Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Guten Tag, everybody. Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. Another solo Wednesday for your listening pleasure. A little bit something different for you today. I'm going to take a little bit of a detour from Whitehead. I promise you I've got two more Whitehead lectures. I'm going to do my absolute best to keep it to two. Um, But in the meantime, I I really wanted to explore some other waters. One of the things... um, one of the things that was strange, like certain things pop up and um, I'll be like, you know what, that's something interesting. I'll put that on the list. That's something I should look at. Um, but then often it'll come up again and again and again, and it will happen in ways that are unrelated. It's the kind of thing that makes me feel like the universe is telling me, hey, man, you should probably look into this. Stop procrastinating. Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep dropping hints until you figure it out. One of those one of those topics is uh, it's Alan Watts. It's a guy named Alan Watts. He just keeps coming up. And um, I mentioned it on the podcast before. Um, a couple of people have told me there's some Alan Watts books that I may want to read. So we're going to look at uh, The Joyous Cosmology. That's supposed to be the most mystical of Alan Watts books. And then one called Beyond Theology, The, the Art of Godsmanship, which I think is awesome. I don't know what that means. Um, I've got all sorts of ideas, uh, but it'll be interesting to read it. I'll probably start with the Joyce Cosmology because it's a little smaller. So Alan Watts. Um, I didn't know much about Alan Watts. Um, I still don't know much about Alan Watts. I'm trying. I've been listening to some lectures that he's done. Um, And he basically is a public speaker and lecturer. Um, I think he was a PhD theologian, somebody who went all the way through graduate school um, as a theologian studying religion. Um, and then he got into Eastern religions. And I think that more or less led to his departure from the church. So somebody who's got a deep interest in God and religion talks a lot about consciousness, a little bit about psychedelics, a little bit about um, altered states of consciousness and mysticism and all these kind of th- things that I really enjoy. All that shit really revs my engine, and um, not only is Alan Watts one of the one of the best speakers that maybe I've heard, um, somebody who's got a genuine interest in those topics, and it's contagious. When you listen to him speak, you're like, oh yeah, this guy, you know, he's definitely into it, and he wants you to be into it. He wants to show you why it is that it's so interesting to him, and I, that's what I like to do on the podcast. So it was nice to see uh, Alan doing that, and. Um, Without having read his books, I was a little bit eager to get started. I wanted to, to bring some of this stuff to you. So um, I went. I found a podcast. Somebody was kind enough to recommend it on Twitter, and it's just called The Psychedelic Podcast. Not not even The Psychedelic Podcast, just Psychedelic Podcast. 
It's full of Alan Watts lectures. It's full of Terrence McKenna lectures. Both of them very interesting speakers. Both very interesting voices. But Alan Watts has this benefit of this um, aristocratic English accent, not unlike um, Ian McGilchrist, who I've told you before, his books are great, but getting his books on audio and listening to him talk or listening to him lecture or listening to him on a podcast, something about the voice, it does it does play a role. It, it does add something to it. And so Alan Watts is no exception. If you have a chance to listen to him, maybe check out the, the Psychedelic Podcast. The episodes that I want to draw from are basically two. There's one called Why You Shouldn't Be Afraid at All. And there's another one called The Line of Least Resistance. Both of these are just Alan Watts lectures. The first one, which we're going to talk the most about, was actually a lecture he did on the I Ching. So we don't talk a lot about um, a lot about Eastern philosophy, although I bring up the Tao Te Ching from time to time. The I Ching is not something that I'm particularly familiar with. So it's called the Book of Changes in English. And you guys may, I mean, like, so I'll just be perfectly honest with you. When I think of the I Ching as an uneducated person on the matter, I think it has something to do with divination. And this was something that people did in ancient times. You, you might have seen it in a movie or, or, or something where people will cast, um, they'll cast lots. They'll, they'll cast bones. They would use like the knuckle bones of animals and they would roll them like dice um, to see what kind of patterns they, they would make. Um, they would also do the same thing with entrails. Um, this even pops up sometimes when you're, when you're learning about uh, voodoo and some of those things where the practitioners will open up a sacrificial animal, they'll pull out the entrails, and then they will read the patterns of the entrails. And this is what comes to mind with I Ching, like casting the knuckle bones, th- you know, dropping the lots, these are these little, little sticks that will fall into certain patterns. There's another one that comes to mind. I had a buddy who, um, who was Palestinian, he, his family was from Jordan, and he, um, he told me that the old Arab women, they have this... Uh, I don't know. I don't know what you call it, a custom or something, but um, it's a little. It's it's just a cultural custom, and it's an old timey one. And what, what the women would do is they would um, they would serve tea. That's a normal thing, um, you know, just like in England, very normal there in, in the you know the um, uh, in the the Arabian uh, world. Um, they would drink the tea, and then I don't know, maybe it was coffee. Maybe it was Turkish coffee style. I can't remember. But the point is that there were. Um, sediments in the glass, and when you were done drinking, if you know if you drink too much, you're going to have a mouthful of sediments. So what you would do is drink most of it. You just have a little tiny bit of liquid left. And then what the what the old women would do is they would take those cups and they would turn them upside down, put them on the flat on the table, and they would let the sediment sort of drip down the sides of the cup. Then they would turn the cup over and they would read. They would read the patterns of the sediments that have that have now dripped down the sides of the glasses. They're looking for patterns. They're looking for images that pop out at them. It's a way of divination. It's a way of seeing the future, um, or maybe having a question answered by the, the cosmos. So right. So it's like natural forces are involved, and a certain level of randomness is involved when you drop the bones when you drop the sticks when you drop the entrails so you don't have any control over it they're going to fall in whatever pattern and whatever way they're going to fall and that's supposed to be insight somehow into the operations behind reality 
by reading the patterns that were randomly generated by the laws of physics, let's say. You're going to have some ability, some access to knowledge that, let's say, is unconscious or um, you know, somehow in a, in a potential form worked into the laws of nature and you can deduce it if you're skilled enough, if you're practiced enough at what the patterns are. You can, you can get information from it. Now, I could be completely off base as to whether I Ching is along those lines, but this is what I always thought. Um, I, I preface this just to say, we're going to be talking about the I Ching a bit in the beginning, and I don't know much about the, about the I Ching, so what are we doing here? Well, we're going to be talking about some broader underlying concepts. We're going to be talking about opposites. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the negative side of the spectrum. So opposites like positive and negative, we're going to be focusing on the negative. Uh, and this is very much what the I Ching does, and we'll get a little bit of this from Alan Watts himself, and that'll help to understand kind of why, uh, why I'm talking about I Ching at all. <clears throat> but it's going to lead into a broader conversation about the negative side of, of, of any set of opposites, um, what it means, why it's important, um, why we write it off at our peril, that kind of thing. And so we're just going to begin this conversation through the lens of the I Ching. A couple of things that come up, well, I'll just tell you for context. The I Ching, um, or the Book of Changes, apparently it goes back to 1300 BC, maybe maybe significantly earlier than that. It's, a, it's the oldest existing work of Chinese religion or philosophical traditions. It's very, very old. And um, it predates, uh, you know, it predates many of the things that we would talk about if we were talking about Confucius, Taoism, Buddhism, things like that. Um, and I want to say, there's, there's been a couple instances where I've mentioned that there's been strange coincidences um, that seem to be important in retrospect. And one of the things I've noticed is, and I've told you this before, but I like to buy these antique books and... Um, you know, if there if there's something if it's a topic that I think is interesting, and if the book is beautiful, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to read it. Um, I just like to have the old books up on the shelf. I like the way they look, um, but I'm picky about it. So I'll buy ones that have to do with religion or philosophy, um, generally, maybe science. But I'm not really going to pick up an old book just because it's pretty. And I tell you that because I bought a copy of the I Ching when I was a teenager. I'm pretty sure I was a teenager. Um, took a little trip to the half price bookstore. Like I used to do, uh, found a beautiful book. It was like five, six bucks. Maybe it was published in the fifties or something, but it's just old enough to have the age, the color, um, you know, the quality of the book. It's not like they don't, they don't make them like that anymore. Even hard copy books now, everything's pasted. And, uh, point is, um, I picked one up. It's a beautiful yellow book and it just sat on the shelf. I never read it. I told you why already, because it seemed like it had to do with divination and it, I wasn't really, it's just, I would brush that stuff off as woo. Um, I wasn't going to give it any time. And then, fast forward to recently. Then I was getting into Carl Jung, as you guys know. And I found that Carl Jung wrote the foreword to the I Ching. Obviously not the original, but the one that I bought. Right, so Carl Jung did the foreword to the I Ching copy that I had bought when I was a teenager. Now I find myself deeply interested in Carl Jung, reading a bunch of that stuff. And now I'm like, wait a minute, Carl Jung is saying that the Book of Changes is a profound psychological book. It has profound meaning. 
And I'm like, hold the phone. I thought th- I thought I could write this off. I thought this was divination. You know, what what do you mean this is a deeply profound psychological book? Okay, so I tell you that now all the way up to the present. I'm seeing Alan Watts over and over and over again. People are recommending him. Kyle, you know, the other tongue on the podcast has been recommending um, Alan Watts for a while. And I'm I'm starting to see it pop up here and there more and more often. So I'm like, fine, I'm going to check it out. And the first lecture I listened to by Alan Watts is about the I Ching. So that's the kind of weird coincidence. Um, Maybe it's not a coincidence. You know, we're talking about a long stretch of time. You know, I have these interests. I'm just you know, likely going to stumble across this once or twice, but it just seems to me like the universe is saying, Hey man, pay attention to this. Um, and that brings me to Alan Watts. Uh, before I get in, I do want to talk for a second again about Ian McGilchrist that I brought up a minute ago. Um, again, another guy with a great British accent talks a lot about the same sort of thing, um, altered states of consciousness and, uh, um, you know, consciousness in general, but McGilchrist is a, um, uh, cognitive scientist and he, you know, he psychologist, he gets really into the weeds. He's the guy that talks uh, a lot about the different hemispheres of the brain and all that, how they work together. And he brings up the, what he calls the coincidence of opposites. And we're going to be talking a lot about opposites today. So I think it's important to talk about this a little bit. Um, a couple things like McGilchrist says that there's a coincidence of opposites, meaning that they always and only occur together. Positive and negative. Only and always occur together. Masculine and feminine. You know, being and non-being. Potential and actual. Whatever set of opposites you want to you bring up. Light and dark. Um, whatever it is. Hot and cold. They always exist in reference to one another. And never by themselves. And that's significant. Because what it tells us is that opposites, in, in, a, in a manner of speaking, aren't different things. We like to think of them as not only different things, but the most different they, that they could possibly be. They're on different ends of the spectrum. They're as far away from each other as they could possibly be. So they're as different as possible. And McGilchrist is like, oh, not so fast. Not only are they not, you know, as different as you, as you, you know, your intuition might tell you. They're actually one thing. And the reason they're one thing is because you can't have one without the other. If you get rid of one, you get rid of both. You can't have one without the other. So, effectively, they're one thing. And I've used this example before because it uh, comes up... um, comes up a lot, but it's from right from the Tao Te Ching, from the Taoist holy book. And it says, in paraphrase, something like, you can't have beauty without ugliness. And I've said this before, uh, but I'll lay it on you again. If everybody were beautiful and there was nothing ugly, you never encountered it, if everything was beautiful, then ugly wouldn't exist. It wouldn't have any meaning even. And the kicker there is that beauty wouldn't exist either. Because if everybody's beautiful, there's no contrast. Not only would you not know what ugly means, but because you don't have that idea of ugly, you wouldn't know what beauty means. It simply wouldn't exist as a concept. If everyone was ugly, or if everyone was beautiful, there would be neither ugliness or beauty. They go away, poof, together. 
They come into existence, poof, together. There's always and only a coincidence of opposites. You cannot have one without the other. Now, opposites being one thing is a very interesting and hard-to-understand idea, but it's something that comes up when we talk about the Ouroboros, when we talk about religious mythology in our most ancient stories. You know, the cosmic egg is what they call that in India. Uh, in the Sumerian myth, it is Apsu and Tiamat, the, the feminine and the masculine god of god and goddess together united. And in this, you can imagine them as an egg. They're one thing. They're united, but they're opposites. Tiamat and Apsu are the fresh water and the salt water, the masculine and the feminine. But within that egg, they're producing, they're, gen they're generating, just like you would imagine if you bring a man and a woman together. They're going to be generating and, and creating things. And this is what happens in our religious stories. We have these opposites that are really one thing. And we, we recognize that their unity, their coming together or being one thing, is a creative act. It's something that generates things. And if opposites can be one thing, and maybe if that's the proper way of understanding them deep down, then you could think of something like everything and nothing, right? Opposites. Maybe the most dramatic dichotomy you could think of. All and nothing. And they're one thing. What does that mean? Very, very difficult to understand, but we're going to get into that. Another thing McGilchrist uh, adds to this conversation is um, he, he has a deep love of music, um, among other things. But he'll talk about music and he'll, he'll emphasize that the notes of the songs are important. Of course they're important. But they're not as important as the silence between them. The music is something. It's good. But it really is nothing without the silence. Music, silence, opposites. And you must have them together or you don't have music. Right? And he gives this example, I think it was McGilchrist, that you take all of the, um, all of the great works of uh, you know, Beethoven or something and you play them all simultaneously. You, know, you play them all at once. When you have enough music playing all at once, every possible note overlapping every other, you know, notes overlapping the silence and the silence overlapping the notes and everything blends together, and what you end up with is something deafening, you know? It's a, it's a buzz. It's, it's a complex, super complex ball of noise that ceases to be noise anymore. At a certain point, it just becomes a buzz. It's not, it's not music at all. It's the opposite of music. So you need, you need to have the silence in between the notes or you don't have any music at all. And there's also a, this strange paradoxical idea that all of the notes together, all of Beethoven's music played all at once, even though it isn't, it, it won't sound like music to you. It sound, it'll sound like the opposite of music. But you can see that within all of the songs played all at once, you kind of loop back around to the nothing again, right? You separate the, the music from the silence and, it, and, and you have something. But you play all of the music together and you, it's like you have silence again. It's like you come full circle around to the, op to the other opposite. 
And you can start to see how opposites in that way really are one thing. All right, that brings me to my first section, which is called, I'm going to call, From Black to White and Back Again. And Alan Watts, I'm not going to do justice, obviously, to his voice, but I'll do my best. He says, The I Ching is almost a mapping of the thinking process of man. It may surprise you to know that the system of arithmetic, which is used by digital computers, came from the I Ching. We have a binary system of arithmetic in which all numbers may be represented by zero and one in various arrangements. Okay, so that's interesting. There's something about the I Ching that he's relating to the, the computational binary. The I Ching system is made up of exactly the same system that we see in, in computing. Zeros and ones, yes and no, on and off, a binary. And that, remember, that, that dates back to at least 1300 BC. So that's interesting. But notice that on and off, black and white, zero and one, that these are opposites. All right, Alan Watts says, he poses the question, black or white? Then he says, we keep saying to people, life isn't just black or white. There are many shades of gray. True, but against some backgrounds, gray is dark. And in other contexts, gray is light. And really all colors, in fact, all information whatsoever can be translated into terms of yang and yin. So here again, we're talking about these opposites. Black and white, yin and yang, one and zero. And he does say something interesting about gray here. He's like, you know, making that point that's just sort of um, a saying, you know, that we've all heard many times, that, uh, that the, world, the world isn't black and white, but, but many shades of gray. And he makes this strange remark that, yeah, true, but in some contexts, gray is dark, and in others, gray is light. And gray has an interesting way of doing that. It's sort of a mixture of black and white. And with the right background, you would agree that gray might look dark, or it might look light, like you're bringing out the white in it, or you're bringing out the black in it, um, you know, somehow to make that distinction. And so there's some sort of interchangeability that he's pointing to. You know, black and white together could be black, could be white. There's some sort of interchangeability with opposites, and we're going to get into that. But it's also, it also points to the union of opposites, because that's what gray is, the union of black and white, let's say. And so things are a, a combination, a union of opposites. And in the ancient Chinese world, that was the union of yang and yin. All right, so I'm going to paraphrase this next little bit of the lecture, but, but Alan Watts starts to talk about how electrical pulses, and they're kind of behind all of the technology that we, that we love so much, um, behind the communications, the signals uh, of satellites, of uh, light traveling, of te our, you know, our television uh, broadcasts, uh, you know, our radio, all these sorts of things. He says that they're, they're all being communicated through pulses, on and off, pulses, you know, on and off. And that those pulses can encode even the most complex information. And they can display it to us on our television screens or on our computers. 
um, or the, the audio that's coming through our, our kind of headphones right now. That information is encoded in this binary system, just like we saw in the I Ching. This, this system of opposites, or the union of opposites, or the interaction of opposites, on and off, on and off, those pulses. You can think about, um, what's that, uh, Morse code, right? Something like that. Uh, dashes and dots, right? On and off. And then he says, it's the same with our nervous system. He says the neuron carrying the message either fires or doesn't fire. If it fires, right, that's on. If it doesn't fire, that's off. One and zero. Isn't that interesting? Then he says, out of these two come everything. Yang means the positive, yin the negative. Yang is identified with the south side or sunny side of a mountain. Yin, the south or shady side. Excuse me, the first one is north, the north side. Um, the north or the sunny side. The yin is the south or shady side. And then he says, note, you cannot have a one-sided mountain. So that's just one of those, one of those Alan Wattsisms, you might say. Note, you cannot have a one-sided mountain. And, and this is just a, a way of him saying what McGilchrist said when he talked about the coincidence of opposites. You always have one and the other. Never just one. Always both. Always. Then he describes the yin-yang symbol, which I think we all, we all know. Um, if by chance you don't, the yin-yang symbol is just black on one side, white on the other. And there's sort of an S-shaped uh, line that separates the white side from the black side. So they're um, identical shapes, uh, but, they're, but they're in opposite positions. And on the white side, you have a black dot. And on the black side, you have a white dot. So what you basically are seeing is this this illustration of opposites, black on one side, white on the other, with the caveat that in the black, there's a little bit of white, and in the white, there's a little bit of black. And the idea there is, as Jordan Peterson said, that you're, you're meant to intuit that the white can become black at any moment, and the black can become white, and they're, and they're in, inseparable from one another. There's white in the black and black in the white. And then Alan says, now, obviously, white and black are as different as different can be. But strangely enough, black is white in a certain sense. If you take the word is to mean implies, because black implies white, and white implies black. Or positive implies negative, and negative implies positive. Because you can't have one without the other. You know, if, if the world of our experience was nothing but black, this just goes back to the example of beauty and ugliness that we talked about earlier. If everything we experience is black, entirely black, white would have no meaning because it doesn't exist. Of course, I think we would all agree that's pretty intuitive. But black wouldn't exist either. It wouldn't have meaning either. And you're thinking, well, hold on, everything's black. Of course black would have a meaning. Really? Black would just be taken as a given. Black would just be reality. We wouldn't call it black. It wouldn't be black the way that we understand it. Not until you have a contrast to black. Does it become anything or have any meaning? And so you must have white to have black. You might have something, but you don't have black without white. You don't have negative without positive. 
He says, we can say explicitly, black and white are different. But implicitly, that is to say by implication, they are one. The secret is that they are one. I love that. Uh, He says this multiple times, and I'm going to highlight it when he does. The secret, he uses that word. The secret is that they are one. Uh, I don't know about you, but my sort of mystical intuition kicks in. My, the hair stands up on my arms. When I, when I see the word secret and one together, it's just like, yes, that rings entirely true. The secret is that, that we are one. That's what the mystic intuition tells you. You know, all matter and energy are one. All consciousness is one. Everything that exists is, is, is one thing, becoming one with the universe, right? Everything is one. And the, uh, the, the separation and the distinction between us is something like an illusion. Maya, I believe, is what they call that in Buddhism. And when you have a mystical, mystical experience, you do feel like you've been let in on a secret. It does feel like this aha moment, this, this, this eureka sort of a moment. And what's paradoxical about it is it, it, once you recognize it, you realize how right in your face it's been the whole time. How you, you, you can't imagine how you couldn't have seen it. And yet it's still a secret. It's still hidden from us that the reality of things are some sort of a unity. And so this is where Alan starts stepping into mystical waters, uh, which I really like. But pay attention because he's going to be talking about this more and more whenever he says secret. Pay attention to what, he, what he's trying to get at. And then he says, It is only by contrast when black and white are put together that we know black is black and white is white. That brings me to my next section, which I'm going to call meaning and opposition. So Alan asks a question. He says, Does black represent the negative because it is dark like night? Then he says, but when I look at the black dot on the white background, I think the black dot is the thing there, so it must be positive. And therefore, the white represents negative because it represents nothing. Isn't this mysterious that both white and black can play the negative role and vice versa? But still... He says, you can't have one without the other. So see, now he starts to talk about how they're interchangeable. They're reversible. When you want to know, again, when you're looking at a white page and you're writing letters on it, what is the thing? What is meaningful about that? It's the letters. If it's a black page and the letters are white, you're going to say the same thing. It's the letters that are important. That's where the information is. And so black and white, the negation, the background, that could, could be either color, doesn't matter, they're interchangeable. But notice, you can't have the words on the paper without the paper. You need the black, you need the white, you need the background. You need the nothing. You need the nothing, right? The words are the thing, but you can't have the words without the nothing. The paper that has no information in and of itself It's drawing your attention to the thing. Those are the letters. You can't have the thing without the nothing. Isn't that interesting? All right, then he says, 
it isn't easy for human beings to notice that you can't have one without the other because our attention has difficulty seeing both at once. So this would be a great place for McGilchrist to step in and start talking about the, the different hemispheres of the brain and why that is. See, one of our hemispheres, uh, one of the hemispheres of our brain sees the world as a synthesis. It sees the story. It sees the big picture. The other part, though, only sees one thing at a time in a tremendous amount of detail and doesn't have any context at all. It doesn't ever have access to the story. And that's the part of our brain that's seeing things only one way. And he uses as an example something that I'm pretty sure we've all seen. You ever see those um, images? Usually they're images. They're like uh, a, a game that you're playing with your vision. You know, sometimes it's looking at colors. They seem to be moving, even though they're not. You're like playing a trick with your eyes. Or you look at something and um, uh, maybe you see multiple images in them, um, that kind of thing. One of them that's very famous is a picture of a chalice. You guys know this. It's just a white cup, and you're staring at the white cup. And it's against a black background, but you see a cup, you know, a chalice, something like the fucking Holy Grail. But after you're looking at it for a few seconds, your brain shifts, and the white chalice becomes the background. And the black on the, on the outside of the chalice becomes two faces just getting ready to kiss each other. Right? The black looks like two faces, and the white in the middle looks like a chalice. And your brain cannot see both at once. It shifts back and forth, right? Back and forth. Kissy faces, chalice. Kissy faces, chalice. This is what he's pointing out. It's like, this is why human beings don't notice that you can't have one without the other when we're, when we're considering opposition. Because something about our biology prevents us from seeing both at once. It's one or the other. I think that's interesting. He says, by reason of their interdependence, they are one. Talking of bees and flowers, where there are flowers, there must be bees. And where there are bees, there must be flowers. This implies that the bee and the flower are really one organism. Hmm. He says, the head of the body looks a lot different from the feet just as the bee looks different from the flower. But a complete body requires both head and feet. So obviously they are one organism, as the bee and the flower are one organism. Man, I absolutely love that example. I mean, that, that really does help you to understand how things that you perceive as entirely different, I don't know if you'd call a bee and a flower opposites, but things that you would that you would perceive as entirely different, separate organisms, can in reality be one organism. And to me, that helps me understand, it helps me to understand better the way I conceptualize the relationship between God and, and reality. That we can be one organism, which I believe we are. I believe the mystic experience tells you that. How we can be one organism and still have this perception of being so distant from each other. You know, what God is like, this perfect eternal thing. And what, you know, mankind is like or, or creation is like, this, this finite, um, limited uh, existence that's 
plagued by, you know, d- disease and, and entropy and, and all these things. They, they, can't, they can't seem to be any more different, any further away from one another. But like the bee and the flower, you can't have one without the other. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's right. Okay, that brings me to the next section, which is called Nothing is Something. And really, guys, this one is what inspired me to do this podcast entirely. This, this part here. So I'll let you know when I get there, but here we go. Alan says, take a black letter on a white page. We say the black letter is important. That's the thing. Suppose it's a white letter on a black page. We still say it's the letter that's important. We look up at the sky at night and see the stars. And we say, that's what's there. He's referring to the stars. That's the thing. Around them is darkness and nothingness. But absence speaks. Here here we go. He says, we grow up so bamboozled that we don't know that. We are so hypnotized that we don't know nothing is something. All right, so literally the hair stands up on my arms right now, even though I've I've read this quote many times in preparation. We're so hypnotized that we don't know nothing is something. And it reminds me, this reminds me of a quote. This has to do with Alan talking about this being the secret, you know, the thing that that is, is difficult for us to, understand or or knowledge that's difficult for us to come to, even though maybe it's super-duper obvious. It reminds me of a quote by um, Baudrillard, I believe. I don't know how you say the name. You guys will know the quote. It says, The greatest trick uh, of the devil was convincing us that he doesn't exist. Something like that. The greatest trick of the devil was convincing us that he doesn't exist. That little quote, I like it, but it, it, it immediately came to mind when I read this. We're so hypnotized that we don't know nothing is something. I'm not making any connections between nothing and, or something and the devil. This is not what, what I mean. What I mean is that this one simple misunderstanding, this one simple oversight, that nothing might actually be something, that one small honest mistake might be enough to change the way you see the world, the way you see yourself. It may change the possibilities um, for you in the future. It's a really fundamental mistake. Even though it might seem small, it changes everything. And I've talked about this before. I've tried to. If you guys remember when I would bring up the idea of being and non-being, try to understand what, what do I mean by non-being? And I like that word better than nothing, even though people will use them interchangeably. You know, being is material reality as far as I'm concerned. The world of our experience, the here and now, where matter exists, where time exists, where energy exists, when, where that, all that stuff interacts with each other. That's being. Non-being is something else. It's something like the spiritual reality that we talk about in our religious stories. It's nothing in the sense that it's not being. It's not here and now. It's not materially real. 
It's not accessible to me. It's not interacting. It's not, it's not anything that we would call real. And yet, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Non-being is something. But what that something is, is nothing like reality. That's what spirit is meant to be, as opposed to, to body, you know, body and spirit or body and soul. It has equivalent existence, but its, its existence is nothing at all like what existence is like for us. It's its opposite. So reality to us is knowable. Non-being is unknowable. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That doesn't mean it doesn't have reality. It might mean that we can't have knowledge of it. But because I don't have knowledge of it, does that mean it's not real? Because I don't know what happened before the Big Bang, does that mean there wasn't a time before the Big Bang? Because I don't know, you know, what, because we don't know what exists outside of the observable universe. And you take our best telescopes and you look back in time as far as we possibly can. What about just beyond that? Um, horizon because I can never know what's behind that horizon does that mean it doesn't exist no and this is it this is the secret this is the key what it is what we mean when we're talking about God and he's going to use the same thing here when we're talking when we're talking about spirit which we'll get to in a minute what we mean is something like non-being it's something like nothing that is the opposite of the something that we call reality. And remember, you can't have one without the other. You need the nothing to have the something. You need the non-being to have the being. They're mutually counterdependent, as I like to say. All right. And now Alan uses Lao Tse, which is, the again, from that Tao Te Ching I talked about a little earlier. He uses um, his words here. He, he says... Uh, Lao Tse put it this way, the usefulness of a vessel is not so much in the clay, but in the empty space. The usefulness of a window is not so much in the frame, but in the empty space. The space is, after all, not nothing. <sighs> Buddy. So, so this is a more down-to-earth example. You know, it's not like the abstract example I was giving you a second ago, uh, being and non-being. But it, this, this brings the point home that even in being, even in our daily experience, what it's like for us, there's a value in nothing. It is actually something. You have a cup. He calls it a vessel. You have a bowl or a cup. What makes that cup useful is not the cup, but it's the nothing it's the empty part that will allow you to fill it with water and bring it to your lips. Same with the window. What's important about the window is not the frame. It's not the rectangle that you've made out of, out of you know, two-by-fours. It's the empty space. It's the no wall that allows that window to let light in and to let the breeze in. You know, It's the nothing that has value there. And so the nothing is something. And he was talking earlier about looking up at the stars and seeing the black space in between. And seeing the stars, they're like the, the letters, right, that were written on the black page. They're the thing. They're the something. And yet, you need the nothing in between them. You need the space in between them. 
or what do you have? It's not exactly clear, is it? What do you have without the space? All right, he goes on, he says, when we don't recognize that side of life, people can play all sorts of tricks on us. The main trick is I can scare you with death. You won't be, see? I can remove you. Won't that be awful? This is one of the great tricks of life. It was really the fall of man to not recognize the other side. So what does he mean here? I think it's interesting he brings up death and fear of death, partly because everything we were talking about so far, it aligns really well with mystical experience. And religious and mystical experience have one thing in common, which, which very, very often is something like conquering death or conquering the fear of death. People that have psychedelic experiences, for instance, the PTSD studies and the terminal cancer studies that we've seen in recent years, um, have this evidence in spades that people who have a tremendous anxiety and fear of death who have a mystical psychedelic experience no longer do fear death so what's happened there what about buddhism that that teaches if you discipline your mind in a certain way you can remove yourself from the necessity of being reborn and reincarnated over and over and over again you can remove yourself from that. You don't have to be afraid of that anymore. You're not going to be reborn as a slug. You're not going to be reborn as a thief, right? Or, or the message of Jesus, right? Literally, to conquer death. And so he, you see that here. He brings this up, and I think that's interesting. And what he's saying here is, when we die, we imagine that we've become nothing. And that's very scary, you know, that we're something and that we might become nothing, that we might be erased and not exist. And it's like the whole world falls apart. It's like our the reality that we see through our eyes will disappear when we disappear. And that's something greater than just ourselves. It's something, you know, more terrible than just the notion of dying. And he said, this is a trick. This is a confusion. If we, if we uncover the secret, if we know the reality, this, this doesn't have any power over us anymore because we have to realize that becoming nothing and dying could very well be looked upon that way. Becoming nothing is not to be erased, right? Because nothing isn't nothing. It's something. What is that something? And if we know that when we die, when we transition from somethingness to nothingness, that what will be is not erased, but something else, something great, maybe, something to be, to be looked forward to. He goes on, he says, everything we think of is nothing, empty space, death, dissolution, anything that goes against structure, that is against the thing, that, we think, is bad. In other words, we want to play black and white, and white must win. That's the game we're trying to play, not realizing that there cannot be winning without losing. If white must win, black must lose. So if we go back to our fear of death, he's saying, we feel like we want to fill the world up with things, and that that's somehow good. 
And anytime those things disappear, that's bad. And it's like we're playing this game where we want black to lose so that white can win. We want things to exist so that so that non-being or nothing won't exist. And, and, and Watts says, nothing already doesn't exist, you know? But if we want white to win, if we, if we have this favoritism here that the thing is good and we want the thing and we want to get rid of the nothing, we don't realize that to play that game, wanting white to win is to undermine the game. You can't have a game with only white. You can't have a game with only winners. You can't have anything with just one set of opposites, right? Because you can't have one without the other. If you want just one, you're asking for nothing. And it's still not clear what nothing means. So let's push forward. He says, people are afraid of the negative, but the negative is the source of the positive. This is absolutely fundamental. Right? We know this. You can't have negative without positive. They're one thing. There's a coincidence of opposites. But it's also interesting to think that the negative is the source of the positive. We know that, they, that you can't have one without the other. But, it's, but when you bring forth the negative, you automatically bring forth the positive. So negative is the source of the positive just like the positive is the source of the negative. And I think this hits to some kind of ontological question because, because people will say that you can't have something from nothing. Right? God can't poof the world into existence because you can't have something, you can't bring something from nothing. And Alan Watts is going to raise an eyebrow to that and say, oh, can you not bring something from nothing? Is this one of those sort of damaging ideas that we take for granted and not realize how, how difficult it makes our life, not realize how wrong it is? He goes on, he says, energy is waves. Energy is pulsation. Now, you can't have a pulse without vibration. And then he sings out this note on the lecture. He just holds this note like a chant for a while. And he says, actually, if you listen really closely to the sound, you will hear pulse. Without a pulse, nothing happens. So what does he mean here? He's saying all energy is pulse. It comes in waves. So you can imagine that's on, off, on, off. And you can hear it in his voice when he's singing this note, when he's ringing out this note. It's, it's you know, it's like, an, it's like a... Um, the pitch changes, and you can hear that. It's like on and off, on and off, on and off. And that's the vibration. That's the wave pattern behind all of energy, behind all of reality. It's an on and off, on and off. And he said, without that, nothing happens. You need both action and inaction. You need both event and non-event. You can't have one without the other. Okay, he says, how would you know gain without loss? How could you have the sensation of more unless in relation to the sensation less? For sensation is simply awareness of contrast. That's what life is. You cannot have yang without yin. You cannot have a game where everyone wins. 
Having both is the game. You see, there is no vitality without the negative element. All right, so there's a couple things here. You can't have vitality without the negative element. And sensation is simply awareness of contrast. These are the two things I want to focus on. When he says sensation is simply awareness of contrast, I like to think of the time that I spent in the sensory deprivation tank. If you've ever done that, you'll know what I mean. But you get used to being there after a few minutes. You're floating in the water. Everything's pitch dark. You can't see anything. You really can't feel anything. You can't feel your body. Um, you can't even really hear your, your breath or your heartbeat. You've got, you got plugs in your ears. And after a while, you get used to that. You kind of you lose all sensation. And what happens is you, you reach this state of, boy, it's hard to describe. You reach this state where you, you don't exist, at least not in the way that you are accustomed to, because you don't have any sensation coming in. And then every now and then the water will shift you just so, and your thumb or your foot will touch the side of the tank. And for the first time in an hour, you have any sensation at all. And the contrast between no sensation and even that tiniest little touch on the side of the wall, it's like an electrical shock through your whole body. The contrast is what you notice. I don't know if you've played blackjack. It's just an easy kid's card game that you play. But you can see the same thing with, with, with blackjack. It's like you're flipping the cards over, and it's like you're, you're, only, you're only looking for the one card. Or maybe it's all red, and you're looking for that black one. And as soon as you see that black one pop up, it's, like, it's almost like red card after red card after red card blends together into nothing. It's like your mind gets used to that and says, I'm not looking for you. I'm looking for something different. And the moment that black card comes over, it's like, bam, your consciousness gets sucked into it. You're like, that's it. And you're driven to action. The contrast is important. Think about it. Think about how long and, and action-packed your life uh, seemed like when you were a kid. Because all this newness, right? Every experience you have is something new. And then you become a working stiff like myself, and every day becomes identical. And when that happens, the days and the weeks, they start to slip by so fast because nothing ever happens. Nothing different ever happens. And so they blend together, almost like they don't exist at all. And then one day something exciting happens, something different happens, and suddenly you're engaged again. Suddenly the world comes alive again. So there's something like this going on. When he says sensation is simply awareness of contrast. And if there is no contrast... If you just have one side of the opposites, black or white, you have nothing in a manner of speaking. And this, and this is something I wonder. When he says sensation is simply awareness of contrast, I wonder if we could replace the word sensation with consciousness and say consciousness is simply awareness of contrast. And he says that's what life is. And Consciousness is what life is. All right, then he says, you see there is no vitality without the negative element. You need both or you have nothing. The negative element is just as important as the positive. It's just as important as the thing, like he keeps saying. You need the negative. But interestingly, he says, the negative is the vitality. That's, that's the life itself. So there's no life, no action, no story, no music, 
without the negative element. There's no game, right? He says, non-existence is the necessary condition for existence. They come into being together. All right, we've said that many times already. Um, non-existence is the necessary condition for existence. They're opposites, and uh, as such, they're one thing. They come into being together, all that sort of stuff. But this coming into being together reminds me of something that I've talked about before. It reminds me of this, um, well, the work of Jean Piaget that I encountered through Jordan Peterson. When Piaget uh, was studying child development, like the psychological development of children from infancy all the way through you know, childhood and how, how that process unfolds. And one of the things he noticed was that a child's sense of themselves and their sense of the world arise simultaneously and they develop simultaneously. You can't have one without the other. Self and world they come, they, they come together. So as your brain's developing and you're, you're making sense of what it is that you are and what it is the world around you is and your place in it and how you, you, know, how you can interact with it and what that means, that all of that stuff happens at once. Almost like they're opposites, yourself and the world. And when he says non-existence is the necessary condition for existence, that word condition pops up again, and I, I'll remind you that all of our science textbooks uh, back in the day would talk about the Big Bang, you know, the beginning of, of, of things. That being triggered by conditions, whatever that means. There are conditions that allowed the singularity to, to expand. Prior to, prior to that, there was nothing. And after that, there was the Big Bang and everything. So from nothing comes everything. He says, you can't be yourself without something you call other. How would you know you were unless somebody else was something else? In other words, the sense of I is entirely with reference to something which isn't me. How can you have self without other? I think this self and other idea plays into that Piagetian model I mentioned about your sense of self and your sense of the world kind of mutually arising together simultaneously. Because you can't be a self unless there's a world, unless there's something other than you. Right? Self and the world are opposites. I and you are opposites. You need them both or you have nothing. He says, if you want to have knowledge, then there must be the unknown. And what we witness as our present is the magical appearance of the known from the unknown. Oh, man, I love that. So if you want knowledge, there must be the unknown, right? Because known and unknown are opposites. If you want to be able to know, there must be an unknown. Isn't that interesting? And what we witness as our present is the magical appearance of the known from the unknown. Something from nothing. And that brings me to the last section here, which, which is called Spirit is Nothing. Here we go. Watts says, All this hocus-pocus about the fear of nothingness, 
Truly speaking, nothingness is what we want to talk about when we talk about the spiritual. All right, pump the brakes. Nothingness is what we want to talk about when we talk about the spiritual. Let's stop right there. How different is that from our ordinary understanding of the word nothing? Nothing is not the absence of something, exactly. It's, it's something. Like everything is something. It's just a different kind of something. And Watts is saying that it's the spiritual something. So we, we exist in the material world. And there's something like a spiritual world as well. It runs parallel to it. But it's not separate from it, is it? The nothing and the something are one thing. The spiritual and the material are one thing. Opposites in union. And without them both, there is nothing. So when we talk about nothingness, we're talking about spirit. How interesting is that? He says, only it's all been ignored. But that's where the secret lies. And obviously the secret lies where you'd never think to look for it. Where was Christ found? In a palace? No. Where no one would think to look for him. In a pigsty. So you see the word secret pops up again. He says the fact that nothingness is spirit. That's the secret. That's the thing we ignore. And what is spirit? Well, it's something like the force of life within us. It's something like the awareness of, of our consciousness. It's all of those things. And that's nothing. Nothingness. So clearly, nothingness is something profoundly important. You can't have the letters without the nothingness of the page. You can't have the stars without the nothingness of space. You can't have life and consciousness and vitality without the nothingness of spirit. So what is nothingness? Well, certainly not nothing. And that's where the secret lies, he says. He says... I could suggest that you meditate on nothingness. And I know you can't think about it, but when it becomes clear to you that that's what you are and what you were before you were born, where can anybody stick a knife into you, fundamentally? This is really the secret to the whole thing. Precisely to the degree that you have discovered the nothingness that you are, you will find you're suddenly full of energy. That is energy. It's the source and origin of energy. Whew. The nothingness that you are. You know, that you're something fundamentally, profoundly important. Even without the, the material body, even without the material world. Your spirit, that nothingness still exists. When you erase all the everything, you're, st you're still something there. It's just not obvious to us. And that spirit, he says, that's the energy, the source and origin of energy. Spirit is the source and origin of energy. I don't know what that means. Alan says it's the secret to the whole thing. He says, real nothingness is not darkness. It's not like being buried alive forever. It's not like rest. What is it? Nobody can imagine. 
At that point, where the imagination completely runs out and stops, there we've hit the thing, the fundamental mystical reality, unknowing. So if you're going to meditate, he says, if you're going to meditate on nothingness, you're going to identify with that nothingness. And he said, it's at the point where your imagination completely runs out, when all the thoughts that could possibly run through your head and all the images and all the meaning of what could nothing be, what could nothingness mean, when all that finally stops and runs out and you're left with, and you're left with a, a state of just awareness, like an exhausted state of just pure awareness. There, he says, there you've hit the thing, the fundamental mystic reality, unknowing. So, the known comes from the unknown. And unknowing is that state, of, that state of being, that spiritual state of being. That's not like knowing. It's not like the state that we exist in now where everything is knowable. It's the state of unknowing, which sounds like nothing, but it's quite the opposite. It's, it's that from which knowing is possible. And Alan Watts says, Shankara, well... I tell you, that's a, a Vedanta um, uh, figure from from Hinduism. It says Shankara gets at it when he says, "That which is the knower in everything can never be an object of its own knowledge, for fire doesn't burn itself." Whew, let me read that again. That which is the knower in everything can never be an object of its own knowledge, for fire doesn't burn itself. Buddy, we can never know what the Brahma is. If you put something there, you stop short of the nothing. So what he's saying here is trying to imagine a God, trying to imagine what that nothingness is. Any idea whatsoever that you come up with is going to bring you further away from the truth. That's exactly what Taoism says as well. Taoism says... The Tao that can be spoken of is not the real Tao. This is, what, this is what he's saying. If you come up with any notion, any idea, any model, any concept of what God is, you're wrong. You're off the path. If you put anything there, you stop short of the nothing. So what is the nothing? That brings me to my conclusion. Nothing is not nothing. Nothing could be further from the truth, pun intended. Nothing is the silence, punctuating speech and music, without which neither would exist. It is the expanse of space punctuating each object, allowing them to be independent things. It is the zero that contrasts the one in our computers, the trial that contrasts the peak in quantum waves. It is the contrast to being without which nothing could be. It is non-being, the opposite pole that completes the circuit. Watts calls it the necessary condition for existence. So it is potentiality, the potential for existence, that which makes existence possible. We could say that nothing is the potential for something, Oh, but how counterintuitive. But this speaks to our faulty assumptions about what nothing means. 
Let's lean on an analogy to try to better understand. Imagine the spectrum of light streaming from a prism. Imagine the rainbow of visible light emerging from the invisible, from the white light, which is no color at all. Now imagine every song ever written playing all at once. Imagine how every possible note playing together blends into a deafening buzz, into no music at all. Here we can see a strange eventuality, a paradox. We can see how everything, considered all at once, becomes nothing. All colors join to become no color at all. All music join to become no music at all. Imagine every experience being experienced all at once, with no nothing to punctuate them. What do you have? All experience all at once is no experience at all. What we find here is that everything and nothing do not seem to be different things. They seem to be equivalencies. Now, if we circle back to Watts, we find something even stranger. He tells us that nothingness is what we mean when we say spirit. Spirit, of course, being the internal force of life and consciousness. He even attributes to nothingness the energy behind all motion, action, and interaction. He says, quote, It's the source and origin of energy. And, quote, There is no vitality without it. And, quote, It is the necessary condition for existence. Can we agree that this is what spirit is? The thing that separates the living from the dead? The thing responsible for all existence? Can we call that God? I know I would. So what does this suggest? That God is the vital element in the world? That it is the spirit of life breathed into matter as our most ancient myths tell us? Are we meant to believe God is the potentiality, the everything all at once, from which we and the world are separated? Hmm. In this way, God becomes simultaneously the things that exist and the nothingness providing the contrast for their existence. It is itself and its own opposite. The reality which plays out is the dance between them. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.